Dr. Michael Shermer. <laughs> hey, that word doctor, I don't know if we can use that anymore now. I do have a PhD, not an EDD, but it's not an MD. And uh, I don't want to be called kiddo in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> uh, in case this is an evergreen and people listen to this years from now, you'll know what I, I do what I'm talking about. But Dr. Jill Biden, Joe, President Joe Biden's wife, is not an MD doctor. She's a EDD doctor. And Anyway, uh, this this became a flap this week for some peculiar reason. The news cycle was not slow, so I don't know. <laughs> I love how we've done this now twice, basically once in 2018, once in 2019, and now again in 2020. We're doing yeah, this. Yeah, I thought we answered all the great questions. We, There's more. <laughs> we did we did a lot of good we did a lot of questions. We uh, we did scientific humanism was the first episode and then we did an episode on skepticism of spirituality which was mm. really interesting and now we're going to be doing an episode a lot on the synthesis of science of spirituality and some of the other theme themes i mean you wrote a book giving the devil his due which is now what is this almost the, it's approaching six over six months of uh, out uh, that's right. Yes, yes. It came out the week the world shut down. So yes. not a good time to have a new book out. <laughs> well, maybe people at home at home. Reading you know, actually, well. um, book sales. I was reading uh, the book industry trade magazine the other day, and book sales have actually gone up. Uh, it's shifted around a little bit more audio, but the audio sales have been cannibalizing from the print sales. Print sales obviously have gone down because bookstores closed, but the ebook sales have also gone up. And so it appears people are reading more. So that's not such a bad thing, right? Yes. Uh, content consumption has gone up in oh, the, yeah. in podcast world too. Oh, yeah. Most podcast numbers are, have gone uh, sky high through the pandemic. So you know what people are doing? They're you know trying. They're multitasking. They're they're out working out or vacuuming the house or whatever, listening to content, which is fantastic. Yeah. That we have this technology, and it's so cheap, and in most cases, just free. You know, pod, most podcasts are free. You can get tons of college courses for free. I love that. Too. I mean, you could take just think about this for a second in terms of the future of education. You know, Harvard charges I don't know what is sixty thousand a year, right? You can get Steve Pinker's course on rationality for free. It's online, and uh, you know, so th that's you know, why would parents want to pay? that much money when you know the knowledge exchange between professor and student is so cheap and and effective uh, and efficient to do right so that you know the question is what what are you getting for that well of course there's in-class conversations that are hard to uh, replicate on zoom and um you know in the, the dorm life the social life i know that's all fun but really at sixty thousand dollars a year <laughs> Yeah, we have several friends that are in the process of paying $3,000 a month in student loans right now. And we also know that the future of education has a lot to do with the democratization of information technology into these augmented and virtual reality landscapes where they can really intake content. There's the Neuralink phenomenon that's emerging as well with bio and neurosynthesis, which is super exciting. You know, last time we talked, I thought this was so interesting that... When I had just finished Mama Nuiwan, who's a Kogi elder of the uh, Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in Colombia, and I just finished a couple day retreat, wow. just sitting with the Kogi elder, and they have a multi thousand year lineage in that area, unbroken. 
And it was really nice because we did our interview right after I had sat with the Kogi Elder. That was the second one we did. And in this last year, there has been a lot that's unfolded around... Well, obviously, I published High Level Perception, a synthesis of the nature of consciousness, reality, maximizing human potential, science, and spirituality. And some of the ways of dialectic between us, I feel, is going to be upgraded. And so I'm curious to explore on like a very first principled level. And you can tell me if you think this isn't even the most first principled question. Maybe we start with that. Do you think that the question, why does reality exist? Is that the most first principled question? That, uh, that may be one thought too many, as Thomas Nagel says. You know, it's, it, um, it, it may be a, almost a meaningless question. Uh, it just is. Reality just is. It's, it's almost like a- asking, um, you know, what, what, what it's like to, to be dead. Or what, what, imagine there's no universe, nothing. No space or time or stuff, no concepts, no platonic ideas, just nothing. Well, at some point, you can't even conceive of it because to conceive of something, you have to exist, right? So I, 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 have, I have a sense that you've, we, that question bumps up against an epistemological wall. And, you know, I'm not a philosopher, but, you know, philosophers may have some term that that's a, you know, an error in category questions or something like this I, i'm not sure what what it would be called but just the way you phrased it phrase phrase it again the question why does reality why, exist? why does reality exist right um you know simon Sinek has start with why right yeah and it's just an interesting question if we start with our own individual personal why why what is my purpose what is my north star what is why yeah, okay. am I doing what I'm doing? But I mean, then we also ask that same question about reality itself. I mean, one answer is why not? I mean, it, it's just why is there something rather than nothing? Well, why not flip it around? Why why would there be nothing instead of something? Maybe something is the natural state of things. It's just the way it is, and the nothing would be difficult to explain. Um, so again, I mean, you, yeah. you you just want to take us back to the beginning. Well, what if it? We mentioned off air Roger Penrose cyclical universes. What if there is no beginning? It's just an infinity of cycles that goes all the way back, and and that information is gone, so we can never know it. Let's say so. Okay, so then then what? Then we kind of well, hit a wall. Well, that's actually a massive paradigm change because exist the existing structures uh, of the last we can say maybe several hundred years have been a very physicalism oriented structure system that's been very driven by the linearity of time and which is somewhat different actually significantly different than what's most of the ancient perennial spiritual mystic traditions talk about but now when you have people like sir roger penrose who won the nobel prize in physics in 2020 who step up and ha- he has a conformal cyclic cosmology theory And so now if we're literally talking about the world's most cutting edge scientists in physics are beginning to put us beyond in our hypotheses about what exists pre-Big Bang and beyond where we're going. That's a really important conversation because 
it changes our paradigm from being linear and finite to being eternal and infinite. Is that power? Well, right? but 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 the idea of the universe being eternal and infinite is not new. You know, that's been around forever. Uh, that's always been a possibility. It's just that in, in science, there's got to be some way to get at it, to test it, to run an experiment, to, to decide if your idea that it's cyclical and nonlinear and my idea that it's finite and linear, uh, which one is right. And, and if there's never even in principle any way we can answer it, then what are we talking about? You know, we're just we're just kind of navel gazing for fun, which is fun. But, um, uh, you know, for me, I'm more of a pragmatist. What difference does it make in terms if we can't answer it? What are we talking about? Why are we even talking about it? Is it have to do with how you personally find meaning and purpose in life? Do you need to know whether it's linear or cyclical, uh, infinite or finite or, um, or or not? I mean, I don't personally. It doesn't matter to me in terms of what I do tomorrow <laughs> or, you know, the rest of my life or, or, or whatever. It's interesting to know, except it, it, although part of my life is is addressing theists arguments about God's existence or not. And then they, of course, push this argument that there has to be a first cause, because if you go back in time, there cannot, uh, you know, there cannot be a, a no first cause because there's cause and effects all the way up to right now. Uh, so what's the first cause or who's the first cause and so on. So I am interested in, in, in a way of like, well, how would you answer that question? Uh, and so, you know, what we're talking about is maybe a way of kind of saying, well, your idea that God is the first cause, the prime mover, is not the only idea in the category. And, and then I would return to what I just said. And And if there's no way we can test whether the Christian model or the secular cosmology model is the right one, then... At some point, we just throw our hands up and talk about something else. This, in many ways, appears to be where we're heading, which is the synthesis of science and spirituality and technology to run simulations and prove more and more what is the nature of our existence. And it is, in many ways, the most first-principled question. And we're becoming more and more awake and aware to our methods of being able to inquire. The, In a sense, the veil is being pierced, and we're able to understand our own existence better. And that's a very beautiful part of our what can be viewed as uh, in that cycle, it appears to be us in our later potential stages of, of said cycle. Now, there are certain, yes, schools of thinking like, you know, when even Leo Tolstoy saying the kingdom of God is within you, even the word God is now so loaded and packed with different regions of the world believing certain things. It's like big, nice word clouds around each God for every single uh, for, as descriptors for what they believe that 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 is, and then there's this sort of in what I've what I've experienced now is a more perennial wisdom around what God means, and it appears to be that our awareness pre-coloration, just our being, our isness. 
as much as I know that you've had many conversations with Deepak Chopra and that you've had many conversations that are trying to sort of ground the spiritual community, and I think that's extremely important. It's also important to, in a sense, let spirituality try to push the edge of what science knows and have science come and test it with the scientific method along the way. So in the sense, it is the very fact that we are conscious and we are aware and we are experiencing this right now, that phenomenon itself and this just one, you being one expression of that potential infinite creation that's occurring and this just being one combination of it and us experiencing it, it's... Yeah. Uh, that appears to be close to what the perennial spiritual traditions are indicating, and even science is now trying to validate. Maybe I'm not not 100 percent sure I know where you're going with this. So, um, it, it, you know, to, to a couple essays in my my latest book, "Giving the Devil Is Due." One is on uh, why is there something rather than nothing. So, I mean, I don't know the answer to it. No one does. So, I just basically catalog the dozen or so answers that people give uh dismissing starting by dismissing the theological arguments that's one but but again if they're not testable you know what are we talking about how can we get at it so the ones i present are the scientific ones so there's different ones so you've kind of hinted at some of that but then there's um how to what's the purpose of life well here i have a, a section called alvey's error uh, this was one of my Scientific American columns. Alvy is Alvy Singer, uh, Woody Allen's character in Annie Hall, when he has a flashback to it as a child and his mother takes him to the psychiatrist because he won't do his homework. And the psychiatrist says, why won't you do your homework, Alvy? And he says, because the universe is expanding. He says, the universe is expanding. Yes, it's expanding and one day it's just going to all blow apart and none of this is, is going to be around. So why bother to do my homework? None of this matters. And his mother you know, kind of upbraids him and says, what's the universe got to do with it? We live in Brooklyn and Brooklyn's not expanding. <laughs> right. So this is what you know philosophers call a category error that, you know, talking about like if if my actions today don't make any difference 14 billion years from now, then they don't matter. Y yes, they matter. Not 14 billion years from now, but now, you know, because we don't live in the. So that's my argument to the theist argument about the n necessity for having an afterlife. Why? We don't live in the afterlife. We live in this life. We don't live in the hereafter. We live in the here and now. And what you do now matters to other people. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, it's like this William Lake Craig made this argument that, um, you know, if there's no God and there's no afterlife and it, it, it's just this, um, you know, heat death of the universe in billions of years from now, then it didn't matter that what the Nazis did to the Jews. It doesn't ultimately cosmically matter. And it's like that's a category error. It matters to the Jews at that time when they're being uh, uh, you know, exterminated. It matters to them and it matters to us now because we we don't want this to happen again so that more people suffer and, and so forth. So all of this is super interesting, um, but for me, spirituality has a more pragmatic uh, uh, element to it that is, how does it affect my life now? What difference does it make? So if you, know, if you tell me, well, being a spiritual person, whatever that may mean, meditating, giving thoughtful reflections on your relationships and your friendships and what you're doing with your life and those so on. Those are wonderful things. So th those are all really good things, but, but, but they have measurable effects, right? They lower blood pressure, they reduce stress, 
They put the little things that irritate people uh, into perspective so you're not irritated by them. They help attenuate thought flooding, uh, that meditation people always talk about. You know, you just have this flood of thoughts of what your boss said and that coworker and it pisses me off and you rehearse it in your mind. This is what I should have said. You know, you could do this for an hour. It won't make any difference at all. And it's probably elevated your uh, stress hormones and, you know, broken your telomeres a little bit and shortened your life by a few minutes or whatever. You know, so there I, I can see, okay, that has a, a good measurable effect. And this is why it's good to be a spiritual person. Um, but I have a feeling you're, you're after something deeper than that, like something cosmically significant or... Yeah. Well, let's unpack some of this more. That was a good tennis ball hit back. So there's this phrase that I think is really important. It's simultaneity. Simultaneity is key. And so it really kind of boils down to when we were talking a couple minutes ago, it was why do, why do things have to be either or where we talk about having a biological, finite, linear 80-year lifespan while simultaneously holding an infinite, eternal cyclic cosmological simultaneously because when you begin holding those two things at the same time you realize that yeah i do actually care a lot about my moment to moment in terms of identifying how can i how can i be more peaceful how can i be more happy how can i be more blissful how can i understand the nature of my existence and the what gifts I'm bringing to the world how can I actualize those gifts how can I bring value to my myself my family community and the world at large and then in a sense we merge that self-actualized tendency with a self-realization tendency which is talked about as something like realizing what God is realizing what conscious what role consciousness plays in realities and when we sort of merge those things together it really locks in a strong moment to moment presence that is transcendent and present and just incredibly beautiful to vibe with on a person to person level yeah i do i do agree that having a cosmic perspective on things deep time uh, deep space, the Darwinian evolutionary model, the cosmological model. It's 14 billion years. It's not 6,000 years. Uh, you know, it's not just us in a little solar system. You know, we're just a, you know, a pale blue dot, as Carl liked to say. Uh, you know, and, you know, one of 100 billion stars in a, probably a trillion planets in our galaxy alone, you know, and 100 billion to a trillion galaxies and, and on and on. It does put things into perspective and, and, and helps you realize that, uh, you know, the trivial small things in life don't really matter. Uh, you know, it's the it's the deeper, more important things that, that we do that, that matter more. Um, you know, all that matters. I mean, it, it just if you think about, you know, the kind of history of science and the changing worldviews from the medieval worldview to the modern worldview does make a difference on how we treat other people, how we treat the planet, limited resources, so forth. You know, all, all that matters. Yes, it does. Um, and this actually plays into the second thing that I was going to say, which was you're spot on as well, that the realization of infinity eternity does not need to make the existing life that we find ourselves in as an expression of that potential infinity or eternity as something that is nihilistic or meaningless. Rather, 
being viewing it as something that is an artistic expression, something that is something beautiful, something that is that you as a, an individual in that get to contribute something unique in. And so in this case, it would be like you listed, there are these atrocities that happen around the world where millions of people encounter levels of suffering and death and malevolence that are horrid. And so we've understood now that we want to move our society and civilization away from suffering, malevolence, yeah. tyranny, murder, yeah. and we want to move it towards maximizing well-being, prosperity. And this is the classic heaven-hell analysis, as Jordan Peterson talked to Sam Harris about in with Brett Weinstein and all those fireside chats with Douglas Murray that they had. They're f f fantastic conversations. But it is quite true that the, the way the portrayal that Jordan says of hell and heaven is very similar to Sam Harris's portrayal of suffering and well-being. And so ultimately, we are working our way more and more towards what we hope to be prosperity, abundance, uh, actualizing everyone's fullest potential. Yeah. And so we've identified that as something that we care about. Um, unfortunately, a lot of religious people don't think of it as a metaphor like maybe hopefully that's what Jordan means when he talks about that, you know, kind of mythic truths or metaphorical truths about heaven and hell. A lot of Christians, for example, and Muslims, you know, think this is actually a place you go to, you know, after you die, that your soul floats off your brain and goes off into the ether through the quantum fields or whatever uh, they, they, they think it does. Um, you know, th then we're not, that's a completely different subject, really. It's it, what, the way you're phrasing it, and, and hopefully that's what Jordan means when he says that, although I'm never 100% sure about that. Uh, you know, that, that can lead to a humanist, kind of, you know, enlightenment humanist or scientific humanist worldview in which we recognize the suffering of other creatures, in part having a cosmic perspective, an evolutionary perspective, like your shirt, you know, we're mm -hmm. all... You know, we're all, you know, share DNA with the tree, right? It, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, Sagan used to say that, you know, there was a better chance that we could breed with a petunia on Earth than, than an alien, you know, just because they're not going to have DNA probably. And anyway, so this in response to this idea of alien-human hybrids, you know, living amongst us, whatever, uh, having some scientific perspective on things cleans out a lot of the garbage that's out there. And I do think that the idea of literal heaven and hell is garbage. It's not not only is it not true, but it's harmful to people. And it takes away from the uh, recognition of other creatures as possibly suffering. You know, as Jeremy Bentham famously articulated before there was an animal rights uh, movement that, you know, it isn't can they talk or can they think, it's can they suffer. You know, so the suffering of sentient beings uh, is our kind of a moral starting point and having a you know a scientific worldview uh, enables that and not having that uh, may not uh, enhance that the suffering of sentience is a moral starting yeah, point. yeah I think so yeah and I think you say that in the moral arc yeah, yeah. you got to start somewhere right yeah, that's great. so that's a good place to start you don't have to start with some cosmic significance or, or a deity uh, or some holy book, you just start with, you know, can other sentient beings suffer? And what should I do to, you know, attenuate that? That's a good starting point. Yeah, yeah. And really, it is the grounding of most of the modern uh, ethical systems. I agree. Uh, th yep. th that is, you know, when you talk about utilitarianism or 
Kant's deontological, you know, kind of rule-based morals or Aristotle's virtue ethics. It all seems to have something to do with how other people are affected uh, by your actions and to what extent the rules that you're employing does affect us. You know, it's, it's very consequential, even the, the ethical systems that claim not to be consequential. Well, the consequences have to be in the formula somewhere. If you're a person living on a desert island by yourself, there's no morals, there's no ethics, you know, except for maybe eating animals or something like that. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, these are deep, you know, questions that, like where you began, you know, where do you start? Well, you have to start somewhere. So I, I referenced Thomas Nagel's, you know, one thought too many, you know, he, he, he brings this up in, in terms of like explaining consciousness. Um, at some point, you know, it, it, it may just be a starting point. Consciousness, it just is. And if you try to answer the hard question of consciousness, that is the qualitative experience of what it means to be something, um, you know, that it may be a problem, a conceptual problem, namely a problem with our concepts and language we use to talk about these things uh, in a way because I can never know really what you experience in your head and just the asking of the question kind of implies that there's a homunculus in me and there's one in you and my little homunculus can uh, tiptoe out of my head into your head to see if the red looks like uh, my red <laughs> on the Cartesian theater of your mind you know of course this, this is all ridiculous we can't do anything like that and uh, so how do we address that problem of you know other minds well here's again a good starting point the Copernican principle which states, I'm not special. We're not special, right? The, the original Copernican principle. Um, you know, we're not the center of the universe. We're not even the center, you know, we're not the center of the galaxy. We're not the center of anything. We're not special. So uh, if I know that your brain, uh, you're a, a mammal. And, Why can't and, everything be special? It's something important to ask, the simultaneity being key principle. So well, there are different levels. Okay, of course everybody is special. But what I mean is, is there nothing special about my brain? So if I suffer pain and I see you exhibiting the behaviors of suffering pain, you're writhing on the ground, you're moaning and groaning, I can predict, even though I can't really know what your mind is like, you know, the other mind problem, maybe you're just a zombie and there's the lights are out and, and, and you just appear to be a sentient conscious being, but you're not. The Copernican principle tells me you are, really. Yeah, let's let's unpack these these levels. So let's start with let's start with this, which was a moment ago, which is great, which is something along the lines of where sentience suffers is our moral starting point. So that's a great way to sort of begin in a scientific, humanistic, utilitarian, rational, also spiritual way to begin understanding where the mystic traditions have been trying to eradicate suffering as well as you know science driving poverty out of the planet and driving abundance in which is fantastic i'm curious what, to, what what you how you define spirituality or what do you mean by that hmm. well it's a good question and i thought that it would also be interesting to highlight to you this as we talk and it's a good way to kind of segue us also into the answer of that that question which is you know this this illustration that 
is in chapter seven of high level perception. It's called the sorting algorithm. And it's actually highly inspired by uh, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris's fireside chats. And because in general, what this graphic is trying to represent is that you, it's the old saying that goes, don't drain the baby with the dirty bathwater. Mm-hmm. And so you want to uplift the baby. And in this case, the one on the left can be something like, let's say, spirituality. You want to drain the dirty bathwater of spirituality, which has a lot to do with dogmas and fundamentalism. And basically the things that Michael has been beating down uh, uh, throughout his uh, and, and many others really have been doing so. And, and Sam has. And it's been very, very important and uh, for maximizing prosperity. But we keep the spiritual baby, which we'll address here in a moment. And then on the on the let's say on this on the right side of the graphic is something like science. And so with science, we have a lot of perverse incentives in the scientific academia. We saw this with the skull affair, and we also saw it again with the the most recent. Uh, what was James Lindsay's and Peter Bogosian's called again? Uh, you, you mean their their hoax? Hoax. What yeah. were their hoax papers? Yes. Just generally hoax yeah. papers. Yeah, so grievance. Grievance studies. Ho- yeah, grievance, grievance studies. studies. Hoax papers, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Okay, so then we had it. We had it show up twice. Those perverse incentives. Plus, we have a lot of other bad incentives. Like, for example, I can just take you on a another example with the draining the dirty bathwater of science. But when you look at like around 1945 or so, and you just begin sort of thinking about like. If, if scientists and engineers that had maybe a little bit more of an understanding of, you know, like sentience of suffering, right? Would we make nuclear weapons? Would we drop them on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And then similarly, I know there's a lot of to unpack <laughs> even just there, but I'll just, I'll just okay. finish the riff quickly. Okay. And right. so there's the dirty bathwater in science. And then there's the beautiful scientific method, which is the baby in you know, pushing beyond the edge of what civilization knows, planting flags, making hypotheses, testing them with the scientific method. It's fantastic. And so in a sense, it's the merging of science and spirituality into one that is going to enable the most abundant prosperity that we've ever experienced in the 21st century, in my perspective. And that looks something like also this graphic, which this is in... This one is in chapter six called AI Coach, but this one's specifically called the Biometrics of Awakening. And this is very scientifically literate because basically the idea is that we constantly put civilization in a wealth hierarchy of the 8 billion people. And we say, okay, there's 2,200 billionaires and then there's a billion or more people that are in international poverty of less than two US dollars a day. And there's some sort of spectrum in between. But we never put up like an enlightenment hierarchy next to that. And we wonder, well, what does it mean? What does non-duality mean? And this might answer some of your questions about what I think spirituality is. What does it mean to, you know, to feel non-duality? What does it mean to feel one with everything? What does that mean? And then where would potentially be some of the scientific ways that can validate states of potentially 
beyond egoic levels of consciousness. So you can kind of tell when somebody has that vibe where they're very egoic and self-dealing and they're trying to get themselves things versus when somebody's really in service to other people, when somebody is really trying to, you know, maybe they do understand some of those those further transpersonal non-dual levels of, of existence. And science comes in in a great way here because it basically has technologies like fMRI, EEG, near infrared spectrometry they have uh all of the studies with heart rate variability and heart math they have all of the incredible studies that are going on with the gut microbiome and you can sort of begin telling like when are people living in coherent brainwave frequencies when are people have higher heart rate variability so it's not this lower more stressed stationary heart rate and so these are good ways to sort of begin in a sense getting us to a place of, okay, well, maybe science can actually help us quantify more enlightened states of being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this? Yeah, that's what, what, uh, that's what uh, Deepak has been trying to do with meditation and, and his interest in science. And I, I wrote about this in Heavens on Earth. I had a chapter in, uh, talking about going to his um, center, the Chopra Center in Carlsbad, and what that was like, how, you know, it was, it was wonderful. It was great. And, you know, beachside resort, getting massages and meditating and doing yoga and eating great food and, you know, green tea and working out every day. Yeah. I mean, if you don't feel better after that, you know, there's something wrong with you really bad. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with with all that. Uh, But what he's after more than that is is this difference between does it work for me versus does it really work? So if I say, well, meditation works for me, it makes me feel better. Uh, Okay, good. Uh, But but what? people like Deepak want to know what want to do is they want to say it actually really works. Well, what do we mean by work? Well, it makes people feel better. Other people, not just me. Well, which other people, all people, 90% of people, you know, and and we're looking for some equation like, well, you know, 75% of people who participated in this study who did two hours of meditation per day, you know, and controlled for everything else. Forget the massages and the green tea and, and all that because you got to take those out of the equation if you want to know what you're measuring, the dependent variable. In this case, maybe it's it's stress hormone levels and you draw blood or it's, you know, your blood pressure levels and you, t- you put the cuff on and you measure that every hour, so, you know, some, something like that uh, to show, well, does it really work? Yeah. You know, and that, that w- there you can essentially write the equivalent of a medical doctor's uh, a prescription i'm giving you this prescription of you know one hour meditation per day five days a week uh and you know and so on and so forth and then you know then we start add in the other variables you know you should exercise you know 30 minutes a day you should have these kind of diet this kind of diet versus that kind of diet you know and, and, and so on you add it all up now if that's what you mean by integrating science and spirituality yep yeah that yeah. Th- that's a, a good a paradigm yeah. And I think, that, you know, not I mentioned Deepak because <laughs> I happen like to know time. him, but, you know, it. there's other people doing this yep. as well. You know, there's a, 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 there's pretty, a lot of labs. There's doing a pretty this. good body of scientific literature studying. Ions is doing it. HeartMath is doing it. Then there's uh, so many other um, centers that are actually even trying to get this down to the level of where we're biohacking our our. Um, our states of awareness and consciousness to the degree of which um, a lot of the technologies that we're talking about are completely outside of the mainstream 
uh, medical industrial complex because in many ways, pharma and insurance have many perverse incentives with the system that in a sense, what you're describing at Deepak's center is basically like that, that, that should be a paradigm that can be a paradigm. That's not just here, take this SSRI and it'll help you take Prozac because it's something you have to take daily. But now if you, and we just talked about this on the program as well, but now if you take psilocybin, and this is the work of multidis mm. maps, mm. multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. If you take entheogens, what ends up happening is within just one dose, there is less anxiety, less depression, no fear of death. And there's a complete withdrawal from use of Prozac and yeah, SSRIs. Yeah. And then you have a person, you know, the people that are undergoing psilocybin are saying things like, you know, my journey on magic mushrooms ranks in the, you know, 33% of people say that it ranks in their, is as their top most meaningful experience. And then 70% of people rank it in their top five most meaningful experiences. And so, you know, to me, because I've undergone this, I've undergone that. Yeah, and I guess I should try that. <laughs> I haven't done anything like this. <laughs> I, I'd kind of like to do that. 5-MeO-DMT. Joe Rogan has talked about this on the program yes, oh, a lot. We have, we, have the, we have the proper safe people to, to yeah. walk people <laughs> like you and others into this process. But really the larger uh, program you're working on here is to tr try to take the woo-woo out of uh, uh, of spirituality and, and for good reason because there is a lot of bullshit in, in, the, yeah. in, in the New Age movement. Um, you know, the whole secret program and, uh, you know, if you just wish it'll happen and, you know, this kind of business. Um, so I appreciate that. I mean, in a way, it, it's a deeper philosophy of science question about how do we get at the truth. May I also just quickly, yeah. because you, that, that was the first example that you gave. But now my, my question would be, have you, you're familiar with Jordan Peterson's future authoring program, right? I'm familiar with that. I haven't, I haven't tried it or read and, much on it. And, and I but, have, I've uh, tried it yeah. and I've been promoting it. And okay. the, I'm just saying Jordan Peterson's future authoring program is not that much different than the idea of manifesting as the secret. Yes, or, is, is, or it, that, as long as there's uh, no as paranormal as, in there. Yeah, yeah, and, no, yeah. and as long as you've the, set an intention to achieve a goal, but then you also take the steps that are needed yes, to actually yes. get to your goals. Yes, and so, but, right, but you're much right, more right. likely yes, right, if you yeah. wake up every day with a divine, noble, transcendent North Star aim, what's going to happen is you're going to have a little bit more of that fire and flare to, to take the steps that are needed to get there versus if that doesn't exist, if yes, there's no course. future yes, authoring. Of course, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yes, of course. Yeah. yeah, but the universe doesn't care about you. It doesn't because there's no universe to care. I mean, in that sense, it's not, con the universe is not conscious. It's not willing you to have a, a new Tesla Model X in your driveway tomorrow and then I just wish it and there it is. You know, it's not how it happens. Okay, but if you want to say, I'm setting that as my goal, and in five years I want to have that manifested in my driveway, and I'm going to do this extra work and save the money, do some investments, blah blah blah. I have the money, I write the check, I get the car, boom. Okay, yes, of course, you know. And and to that extent, you know, I, I think Jordan, if that's what his program is, you know, that's not so different from all the self-help programs, you know, from Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, yep. Uh, Tony you know, Robbins' program. Tony Robbins, yep. all this stuff. You know, they, they mostly steer away from the supernatural, woo-woo, paranormal stuff and, 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 and just bring it down to what you do. Uh, 
Um, And yes, of course that works, but you know, within limitations, I can't just say, well, I, you know, I want to be an NBA uh, basketball player, you know, I'm five, seven and I'm 66 years old. It's not going to happen. Okay. So, you know, you got to pick things that you're good at that you can actually do. Uh, and then aim for them, you know, so let, let, let's let's uh, let's yeah. let's show you another example. What, what you talk about here is but wait, you still haven't told me what you like. So what you mean by spiritual? I'm giving you examples, uh, okay, but, but I of, want a sentence. Yeah. So you're out on let's say you're out on a date and your date says, are you a spiritual guy? You know, you're on a first date and she wants to know. Or he the wants elevator to know pitch. Yeah, yeah, the elevator <laughs> pitch. And you go, yes, of course, I'm a spiritual person. And they go, well, what do you mean by that? Because they want to know. Do you mean that you're a Christian? You're a Buddhist? You're a Jew? You're this? You're, I would say uh, that's the first in a sense like fundamental step that is slowly becoming more and more uh realized as it's just something that gets people ready for something that's even more uh truly spiritual religion in many ways is in some ways just a baby step towards something that's even more yeah okay uh, okay and so and people are realizing there's a lot of perverse incentives in the (laughs) religious structures across the planet but you know every single one of the religious traditions actually has a mystic tradition every single one of them does and so whether we're talking about for for um, for Hinduism, it's things like Advaita Vedanta, or in Buddhism, it's Zen and Dzogchen, or the uh, the Islamic tradition is called the Sufi metaphysics. Then there's um, there's there's uh, Hasidism and Kabbalism and Gnosticism in the Judeo uh, the the uh, Judeo Christians, and then there's also there's these like African Vodun traditions around uh, actually dancing and becoming gods. Then there's the Native Americans North and South that are about you know there's sweat lodges, there's entheogens, yeah. there's potlatches, there's all of these styles of representation there. So what? So after studying this landscape, which I think in many ways Jordan Peterson has done as well. And there are others that have done this as well as spiritual synthesis is what you realize is that all of those mystic traditions, right? So specifically the mystic ones, not the religious fundamentalism ones. Okay. So those mystic ones are basically different flavors of ice cream. So one of them's chocolate, the other is vanilla, the other is strawberry, the other is mango, and you just keep going down the line. But what they all have in common, the perennial spiritual wisdom mm, is that mango. they're... Is that they're <laughs> is that they're all ice cream? Yeah, that's what yeah. they have in common. Yeah, okay, and, I get that. I see where and, you're going with and, this. Okay, yeah, and sure. then yeah. and and great. I'm glad. And then and so then now, if we look at it at that at that ice cream level, now the question would be, you know, when you're asked like, what does it mean? And so I've gotten to this point, and it's that okay, these mystic traditions have the similarity. It's like a meta pattern, which is something along the lines of that. But if I say if I ask you, why do you want to be a spiritual person? I mean, because it makes me a better person or I'm a moral or I, uh, it put, puts my life into pr- perspective or. So. Well, you you gave we've both been giving a lot of great answers to that, you know, decreased cortisol levels, higher levels of future authoring towards goals. Um, my my ability to be more peaceful, happy, loving, compassionate, eradicating suffering in my goals having great, better relationships with my family, my friends. There's definitely hugely pragmatic uh, aspects to this. Yet at the same time, the answer might be something like when you look at all of those different 
the perennial spiritual ice cream itself. What is that spiritual ice cream? A good way to potentially answer that would be, you know, what does the Delphic maxim that was written on the top of the Temple of Apollo at Delphi 2,500 years ago? Two words, know thyself. What does that mean? Yeah. What yeah. does it mean, that question? And so that what I what I hypothesize, again, I'm totally cool with calling these hypotheses. I'm totally cool with planting flags beyond the edge and working our way with the scientific method to prove these things. Absolutely non-dogmatic whatsoever on the program. What I would hypothesize as what know thyself means, and this is what many of the perennial spiritual traditions have hypothesized that it means, is that it's twofold. It's self-realization and self-actualization. And ultimately, those are one, but we'll split them into two to explain it. So self-realization can be thought of in many ways like what the Sufi metaphysics called wahat al-wujud, which is the unity of all being in existence, or what even the scientific community today is proving as, well, I guess technically I take 20,000 inhales of oxygen every single day, but that oxygen is coming from the photosynthesis of phytoplankton and trees, 70% from the phytoplankton. And so then I wonder, okay, fine. Well, technically then, yeah, there is an interdependence, right? And then you look at graphics like this, which I kind of had queued up for this, which is basically like you have this person that's maybe here on the left side of the screen that has a more porous, they're more perforated. They understand that every single one of their inhales and exhales is interdependent on the planetary photosynthesis. And they also realize that every single one of the gulps of water that they're drinking is reliant on a hydrolo planetary hydrological cycle that we're currently polluting with EPPPs, environmentally persistent pharmaceutical pollutants, and a lot of other things. But it's the same water that we're drinking that dinosaurs drank 66 million years ago in the hydrological cycle. And then you also think about things like, well, what about these 1,000 species of gut bacteria that I have inside of me that each have 2,000 gene expressions? So if we're talking 2 million total gene expressions, which is 100 times the 20,000 approximate human gene expressions, we are really in some interesting territories of what is this symbiotic relationship that I have inside of me? And now if you juxtapose that with the person that's on the right, if you look at the person on, that's on the right, the person that's on the right has a red box around their head. Mm -hmm. There's no feelings of interconnectedness. There's no feelings of interconnectedness with the bite of the apple and that undergoing the process of cellular respiration with conversion of, of glucose to ATP for energy. And there's no interconnected feelings with the oxygen they're inhaling and, ex and exhaling CO2. There's no interconnectedness with the water or the gut. And so this is just, you know, we call this identity. We call this porosity. We call this perforation. So in a way, it's the, your level of self-realization has a lot to do with your realization of the unity of all being in existence, but also it has to do with your understandings of what we were talking about at the beginning regarding this awareness or this consciousness and 
its relation to infinite creation and infinite eternal exploration that it's undergoing cyclically as we hypothesize. And so that would be self-realization. And then the self-actualization side is what we were talking about regarding future authoring or Tony Robbins' strategies or any of these other ideas around what's my you know self-help, what strategies do I need to, to take in order to achieve a divine North Star that brings value to the world that I get financially rewarded for. That's the most most common phenomenon is self-actualization in the modern world. But in the sort of more indigenous world, there's a lot more proclivity towards the uh, self-realization. And then that's why this sort of synthesis of the two into one is ultimately, I think, what's most healthy for where we're going. Wow. I think your date would be asking for the check about now. <laughs> Waiter. <laughs> that's my elevator pitch. <laughs> that's yeah. a long elevator yeah. ride. Yeah. It's, yeah. a, it's a difficult one I, to break down I, into just uh, a couple no, seconds. No, no, I mean, I, I follow that. I mean, I think it's pretty much what I said before about having a, a cosmic perspective, an evolutionary perspective, uh, having all the, the details you just went through of, of having some uh, scientific knowledge is actually good for uh, a humanistic perspective. So this is that, you know, that that uh, kind of division between the sciences and the humanities, really they, they go together and he, you, you just give a perfect example of, of what that could bring to a humanistic uh, worldview, which previously mostly depended on novels and literature and, and, and sources like poems and, and sources like that for um, understanding the human condition, I think, in my opinion, uh, science offers all that and more, you know, because it's actually true. Uh, and that perspective then can change your life. That's why I always said, you know, Carl Sagan, I think of as a very spiritual person, uh, even though he's an atheist or, or at least an agnostic anyway, and, uh, and you know, a, a pure, you know, scientific humanist and so on. Although I, I would still say he's as spiritual as any of the, uh, the gurus you mentioned uh, or whatever you want to call them. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's, that's fine. But again, at some point, you got to get up and go to work tomorrow. Right. So it's not like you can think about this all of the time. Um, I remember after reading uh, Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, uh, you know, it's a very it's a pretty good book. I, I actually, you know, sort of puts things into, into perspective. The past has already happened. You can't do anything about it. So why dwell on it and obsess about it and worry about it? The future hasn't happened yet. Uh, we just live in the now. So, you, you know, that that's kind of a, a, an important reminder and it's like, yep, okay, that's good. But, you know, I got to pay my mortgage tomorrow and <laughs> next month, so I got to go to work tomorrow. Uh, you know, so it pulls you back into the real world. I, I see this as a little bit like what religion is for a lot of people, which is, you know, it's something you do on Sundays or whatever. It's, it, it's kind of a reminder of what's important, which is good. Uh, but it's not the kind of thing you can think about all the time, can you? Maybe you do, <laughs> but it, you know, cause it's, it's interesting. The but, synthesis of the two is what is potentially okay. not only, All right. not only most but, interesting, but let's but go back to, you know, you, you, you yep. like talk about Jordan Peterson, you know, so one of my essays in giving the devil is due is, you know, have archetype will travel. <laughs> uh, you know, it's about Jordan and, uh, you know, so here I think we can distinguish between, um, uh, different kinds of truths. You know, so if I say, did the resurrection actually happen? Uh, and maybe Jordan responds, well, you know, we all must bear our own cross and that life is difficult. And, you know, Jesus and the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection, the born again, 
starting over, suffering, you know, as literature, okay, I get that. You know, it's kind of a mythic truth. Uh, and it has meaning for my life because I suffer and then I can work through that suffering and start over, be born again in a metaphorical way. Okay. You know, that's what literature does. That's what myths do for us. But, but it, what a scientist wants to know is, but you Christians claim that this person, Jesus, actually died and came back to life. And that's, they will say, absolutely, that's what we believe. And Some of them, yeah. Some. Most, you know. Uh, otherwise, there's no point in being a Christian, right? The, the, most of it hinges on well, that well, as, is, as, a, as an empirical fact. Meta metaphorical truth, which is what they spent a good amount of time with Brett Weinstein on stage talking about this. Also with the revolver idea is a really good one. If you treat every single gun that you're given as though it's loaded, even if it's not, yeah, is a good choice to do. Yeah. And that's a good sort of way of putting it. Like you're saying in this essay, the idea is like a metaphorical truth that can be really helpful and really insightful in the things that we do. But but in, in the same way, you know, good literature. Um, but we need to drain the bathwater of the dogma and the fundamentalism, of course. Yeah, of there's course. core elements in most literature that has to do with human nature, human relationships. You know, the whole field of evolutionary literature uh, it's sort of a branch of evolutionary psychology. You know, why do certain themes come up over and over and over in, in novels? Because they're the most important things in the human condition. Mm. Uh, you know, power and hierarchy and deception and love and jealousy and, you know, the whole thing. It comes up over and over because that's what's important to us. So uh, there I would say, you know, you know, of course, the Jane, Jane Austen novels are not true, um, but they're true metaphorically because they tap into certain truths about who we are and what we do and what matters, that kind of thing. Another way of putting what self-realization is thought of is something that looks a little bit like this and this is a hypothesis about what the nature of consciousness is again a hypothesis and so the idea being you leverage something like calculus in a synthesis of physicalism with spirituality you leverage calculus to help people understand the integral the integration of infinitesimal data aka the 8 billion humans on the planet. But then there's this unique differentiation, the derivative, the individuation. So on a, on a biological level, it goes something like 99.9% .9 genetically similar humans, the integral. And then the 0.1% genetic difference is your unique North Star gift that you're bringing into the world. And so that's where you can think of like a self-realization being something like the integration, the unity of all being and existence and the self-actualization being that unique gift that you're bringing into the world. And I think that when we do things like we aim to visualize these concepts, which is a lot of what high-level perception did, is that it sort of begins not only driving them more into like explain like I'm five territory visualization territory but it also 
it kind of hits on the point that so many of the greatest logicians of all time have been talking about, and even metaphysicians, the idea that you must make your ideas very clear, clear and precise enough so that people can actually take them apart. It, as you aim to plant your flag beyond the edge of what we know, we have to create the scientific methodological processes that can test it, but also to sort of dismantle it if it's incorrect and whatnot. So you have to say things very precisely. And I think by doing these types of visuals, it sort of assists, even if it's in an elementary way, the process. Okay. And so that's why you see things like Pixar. If you know, did you get a chance to see the movie Inside Out? Mm-hmm. They spent a couple of years making this movie called Inside Out and it's about the the internal psychological workings of the human and it takes it from a very explain like i'm five childlike animated perspective and so it teaches young kids that there is these little characters that are happening inside of them that are kind of like peering through the screen and like the characters are like joy or anger or frustration or sadness and and that these characters are pulling the switches and that they're and these type of things and so in a general way not that it's a thousand percent scientific, hundred percent scientifically literate and accurate, although they did do a lot of scientific consultation and making sure that it was in many ways that at least fundamentally we're trying to, in a 90 minute animated movie, get kids to be more knowledgeable about their inner workings. And so I think that this is the medium of the future. The medium of the future is, in my opinion, no longer... 300 pages of text my opinion and it's more of having a significant amount of visuals infographics diagrams but that's only the one step the next step is to sort of make this type of content mathematically manipulable So meaning I actually want people to be able to come in and begin tweaking these designs, tweaking the Pixar, you know, like in a, in a blockchain, it would be a literal bifurcation that occurs. And so, or in, in code, it would be like you literally take and you copy the existing code structure and you put it here and begin building on top of it. Are you talking about like a virtual reality game that kids would play? Partly. Yeah. Yeah. That's an that's a that's a very exciting future in in my um, opinion is some sort of a virtual slash augmented mixed reality style. And so uh, this helps explain the pro- hard problem of consciousness because it helps you reflect on your own qualitative experiences of sentience or something like this. Yeah, or what, that's, what that's is a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well. So uh, you should get some angel investors and create a company. We're working on it, Michael. We, we have a <laughs> lot of plans company, for 2021. Virtual, rea- virtual reality company that teaches kids uh, how to access their inner consciousness. <laughs> yeah. That could be good. That, that, that could be good. I can see that. Um, I mean, I'm always looking for some pragmatic angle of, you know, what are we talking about here? What, what's the, why are we even talking about this? Uh, you know, why is reality... Whatever, however you phrase that initial question, okay. Why do we want to know? You know, if there's some pragmatic uh, outcome to it, even if it's just the cosmic perspective changes the way you look at things, and then 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 I'm interested. Yeah, 
not, not saying I'm going to invest just yet, but <laughs> <laughs> I love it because oh, you're right that it really does boil down in many ways to a pragmatic angle of things in 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 a scientific, humanistic, rational way. And even in a spiritual way, it really does boil down to just maximizing well-being, maximizing prosperity, maximizing gift achievement into the world, especially for young people and for young people to sort of, in a sense, become more engaged. You know, democracy is not a spectator sport. You know, civic engagement is not something that the economic machinery should pressure people out of being able to do. And so to sort of hone in on that from a young age is really important. Not only the nature of that self-reflection that then gives children access to potential self-realization and self-actualization, but also to just be, in a sense, a good citizen in the social fabric itself, whether it be with their family or their community, the world at large. And ultimately, that is what this process of investigating your own awareness does. This is another good way to visualize I'm not sure it. What the, what, what the rest of that diagram meant, though. What, why do you need the calculus? Oh, the integral? Yeah. Well, the integral is important because you, you have to have a... And, and it, Oh, there it is. And the consciousness is floating off the globe into multiple neurons yeah yeah so we can uh, let's let's pull it let's pull it well, back what up is again. that what are we so, looking at here so yeah so the reason why the uh the integral is present is because there's a it's not only a summation of the infinitesimal data that is the human phenomenological experiences that are happening all eight billion of them but it's also the 10 million species on the planet as well so it's a summation of that and so that whatever that qualia representation is, is summated in there as well. And so that was just a little bit more complicated to add to it. But I wrote about it in the. I mean, is this sort of a, like a cosmic consciousness that the Internet's going to bring? Like a like a, a, a teal hard to Chardon zoo sphere. New sphere. New sphere. Yeah, new sphere. You know, which is sort of the first incarnation of that idea. Okay. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be asking you about the Godhead, the Omega point uh, at some point as well in a little bit. But yeah, the reason why um, the brain is present is because it's a good analogy in this scenario because there's we approximate 86 billion neurons, approximately equivalent amount of glial cells. There is a, a firing and wiring, a synchronization process. You know, two neurons communicating can be analogous in many ways to two humans communicating across a synapse. It's very interesting. And so in a sense, it's like a, a planetary phenomenological experience that's under that that everything is undergoing and then this is only one representation of it on we hypothesize on a on a on a micro like on a scale invariant level this is the phenomenological integral that's happening on planet earth but then what we hypothesize is not only in just these cosmos in this universe but beyond that as well which we're still we're still hypothesizing and working out, but we think it is. Yeah, I'm not. An, I'm not sure this is a hypothesis, because a hypothesis is something pretty specific. You know, a lot of your ideas explain everything, and an and a idea that explains everything tends to explain nothing. 
you know, there's got to be, uh, is there some way to get at it? What exactly are you trying to explain? And and what is the explanation so we can test it and see if it's right or not? Yeah, uh, the answer to that question would be the nature of reality. So metaphysics, what the nature of reality is. And then obviously consciousness plays a fundamental role in that. And then... Well, maybe. But, but well, not everybody well, thinks but that. But <laughs> so does physicalism. And yeah. so this is where, this is what, what, what's occurring right now is that spirituality says consciousness is fundamental and physicalism says physicalism, materialism is fundamental. And now you have a massive dissonance that's occurring when really a synthesis should be occurring. And yeah. so, that's, so that's what I'm working on. So the nature of reality, the synthesis of science and spirituality, and being in many ways, this is, I would say what we've been looking at is it's a it's a big part of of what we've been talking of what the project is but i think ultimately this part which is the very first part of the book is on levels of perception and it's trying to get people to see that the same way that you look at a tree where a low level of perception is just some random tree icon, the medium level perception is you see a little bit more detail. And then that higher resolution perception on the right, you actually see the roots and you see the fruits and you see the interconnection of, of the human. And then when you sort of go and you, you know, you draw the same style of, of analogy here with the human, you go low level perception is just seeing a human. It's a really desacralizing perspective, dangerous one. And then the medium level perception is you see a little bit more detail, but then that high level perception on the right is where you see the whole suite of nuance that's actually fused into, into who they are again at a root and fruit level. And then you'll see kind of where I'm getting at here, which is, you know, Douglas Hofstetter thinks that analogy is a core of cognition, which is very fascinating. And so, in this case, we're just analogizing the the high level tree to the high level human, and we realize that oh yeah, like a tree isn't going to be able to produce fruits if it has nutrient deprivation. And it's the same thing with a human. A human needs their basic needs to be met, which is why it's plastered all over the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and that way the human can actually achieve its unique gifts into the world. And so this analogy, I would say, is uh, a top reason as well. So along with metaphysics, understanding the nature of our reality, synthesizing science and spirituality, and meeting basic needs, providing the analogies that give people the basic needs to maximize those across the planet. Those are, I'd say, the three things. And then the other part of that question was, you know, well, if it's a framework for a lot of things, it's really difficult to, in a sense, be able to prove it, make hypotheses and actually, you know, validate these things. Well, actually, this one doesn't really need like, I mean, a lot of what I've been saying is already scientifically literate. Like it's already scientifically empirically validated. Like we don't need to like it's obvious that when a child is deprived of oxygen or water or food or shelter, they're going to have a traumatic life. Right. Okay, cool, cool. So we're on the same page there. And then that same graphic that I was showing you earlier where there's a cyclical interchange that happens between the human and the photosynthesis of the planet from phytoplankton and trees, that's also scientifically literate and validated and proven. I mean, I don't we are, I'm already using many of the flags. Yeah. That a exist. bit like uh, uh James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, you know, the earth is alive. Okay, it's a metaphor. You know, meta, we think in metaphors. 
but what do you mean by alive? I mean, you know, living organisms are defined by a certain way that a planet doesn't really meet that definition. So again, we're, you know, there's, there's a lot of big words here, big sweeping generalizations, massive metaphors. Okay, now what? Now, you say, well, James Lovelock's Gaia idea that the Earth kind of fueled the environmental movement because if you think of all of this integrated, it makes you care more about destroying the rainforests and so on. Okay, yeah, that's, that's that kind of metaphorical truth that does have practical um, applications to how we interact with each other in the environment, say. But is it literally true? Is the Earth literally alive? No, I, I would say not. And, and just to be very, very clear here, James Lovelock has a specific way of putting these concepts into, a, into something that's digestible for people and understandable for them. This is different. And I think it's really important to identify that although there are some similarities across the different people that you've been mentioning, that this is also very different in its own unique ways and that I'm not coming at it from that angle so much as I am coming at it from an angle of phenomenology or qualia so there's uh, an actual we could say uh, a way to specifically catalog phenomenology that occurs and then be able to <laughs> summate that phenomenology on a planetary level as a whole of conscious experience that's occurring as on a planetary level so that would be that would be what I would say in in contrast to that. And there's another sort of uh, way that I wanted to illustrate <clears throat> to use something that could be insightful. By the way, what what are we looking at here? This oh, this, this is just book. high. This is highlevelperception.com. It's uh, the book that I synthesized. So I, I I wrote this. I synthesized and wrote this in uh, 2020 from January until October. So this so. is your COVID project. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. this is an ebook. It's just it's just or it's a web page. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm actually. Uh, I, I've, I published it um, about a month ago and then I just added a couple, like added about, I, I put it into 20 graphics and I added three graphics um, in the last uh, couple weeks. And then now it's going to be published uh, as a soft cover, hard cover, um, Audible, Kindle, across all major distributive platforms before Christmas. And so, yeah, I just worked with an independent publisher on that. Oh, okay. so, so I'm on... 28 year old author which is really exciting and also that i wanted to i wanted to put everything that i've learned into a framework it's kind of important to do that a lot of a lot of the time we spend um like a majority of our life um not knowing what our values are not knowing yeah. um where our concepts hang in a sort of lattice of sorts and so to at least be able to data visualize our own lattice, our own framework, and then leverage that to become a more coherent thinker so that we're not like you indicate in much of what you say, so that we're not wrong about most things most of the time. And so I, I agree with that sort of perception about it as well, because you can actually get more partial truths if you put things into a framework, into a coherent framework like this, and then sort of continuously, you know, and Bill Gates has talked about this so much, and that's why, you know, his quotes at the top of, of, the, of the author bio. I mean, I'll just quickly show you those quotes, but those quotes are things like, you know, 
you know, it's Nikola Tesla saying, be alone, that is the secret of invention, be alone, that is when ideas are born. And then Bill Gates saying, build an upstream framework, then slot the knowledge in. And then there's Terence McKenna, the cost of sanity in society is a certain level of alienation. And then Simone de Beauvoir says, I tore myself away from the safe comfort of certainties through my love for truth and truth rewarded me. Yeah. And so there's things like that. But again, those are very general, like the first one from Nikola Tesla. In fact, most invention does not come from being alone. Well, sorry. So just to, just to be clear. Yeah. So what's going on with like Tesla and SpaceX right now and stuff like that is happening with teams of, you know, thousands of people. Right. So, of course, I completely agree and am 100% aligned with that. But the quote, again, simultaneity is key here because there was also a time when it would require a profound stroke of genius to occur in absolute silence, whether that be for like Elon Musk or whether that actually be for, you know, whatever, 15 years ago. But then also for all of these great minds that we sort of think as, you know, well, what about you know, whoever else of the geniuses that have lived and died, how much time did, did Michelangelo spend alone so that he could make the Sistine Chapel and Statue of David and Pieta for us today? And, and that's just one example out of, out of so many. But this, this, sort of, this sort of, I think, also helps illustrate what is in many ways um, relatable in this, both the nature of reality, the synthesis of science and spirituality, meeting basic needs and in in this case it's something like you know in this top left corner you have the subject and their relationship with the object and in this case the object is the smartphone and so a lot of people on the planet are having a very a relationship with a smartphone maybe up to potentially 4 billion people have uh, devices on the planet now and they have a very object oriented relationship with it and then what happened was, you know, that's at the tip of the iceberg. And then once you get a little bit deeper, uh, you maybe hit the surface level of, of the iceberg. Did you get a chance to watch The Social Dilemma? I've seen The Social you Dilemma. You did? Yeah. Oh, yeah, perfect. So, yeah. perfect. So, what that second one is trying to illustrate is that it's basically what The Social Dilemma did for tens of millions of people, which made the subject put their analysis of the situation not on the object, but on their relationship with the object, on the arrow itself. And so that's really interesting. So that's a slow awakening is realizing the relationships. And then the next layer down is when the subject begins investigating other subjects. And that's most commonly seen through phenomena like empathy and mirror neurons and trying to immerse yourself in the shoes of somebody else's uh, life experience and states of phenomenology and eradicate that suffering and molasses that's in their way and then allow them to more easily achieve their, their goals. And so maybe you get a little bit of a taste of some of the thing that I'm saying with that when the neuron sees the neuron in the other as well. So when they actually feel the self in the other. And then the last one is sort of the actual subject investigating itself. And basically what that last one is, is when you, as a subject, when if you, if you think of all of the phenomenology that you experience, and then before all of that phenomenology that you experience, you think about that awareness that is at the very, very back. It's like the screen, the Rupert Spira analogy, who's one of the leading non-dual spiritual teachers on the planet, Advaita Vedanta. He basically just uses the analogy of a screen. It's just the screen, but without any movie that's playing on it. 
and then now you turn on the movie and then there's oh look at all of this these lights these cameras this conversation but then if i take the movie off for a moment i'm just that awareness i'm just that beingness and it is a very difficult thing to learn how to separate but that that's what we hypothesize as the nature of being the nature of what we th- believe god is that's why again leo tolstoy the kingdom of god is within you it's not some sort of a of a person that's bearded in the sky it's which is a f- hilarious uh um, misinterpretation of 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 uh, it's actually what many of the religion tradition says but not the mystic ones but the mystic traditions talk about the kingdom of god within you being that awareness and that's why rumi also from the sufi metaphysics said that you go around from room to room looking for the diamond necklace that is already around your neck and the sufis also said that everywhere you look you see god and that that's another sort of way of talking about the unity of all being in existence. So this in many ways is very different than some of the dirty water that you kind of beat a lot, which is, which is great and important because it's like the old codes that we want to archive and move past. But the water pressure builds up in the submarine, which is very, this is why a lot of people don't want to investigate their own awareness. A lot of people don't want to um, undergo the process of the subject investigating itself. But some of the greatest fruits come from that process. Okay. So maybe an, an interesting way of, of, of asking you a question about that would be something like, do you identify periods of time of investigating your own awareness? Have you had spiritual experiences like that? No, I don't do that really. I mean, you know, when I'm out, hiking, walking, cycling by myself, you know, there's a lot of reflective time. Uh, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about these kinds of issues, I guess, because it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, I mean, it's just sort of, it's sort of so broad and amorphous that... Uh, How does this not go anywhere, right? If you have the social dilemma that introduces tens of millions of people to the subject's relationship with the object, I don't understand how I'm, that doesn't I'm not go even anywhere. sure what I, uh, what you mean by that, what that means. Well, you know, with what, what, with what occurred, it was sort of, you know, the subject had been so engrossed in the object of the cell phone, of the smartphone, and all of the different social apps on it, and the asymmetrical data relationship, and... Yeah, I mean, I watched the film. I I, I wasn't impressed. I I, I don't I think there's the the alleged power of social media is greatly exaggerated. These are not nuclear weapons. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of self-flagellation by this Tristan Harris character and a few of the others as if, you know, the invention of the like button was like the invention of nuclear weapons. Like like he's the equivalent of J. Robert Oppenheimer with sin on his hands. He's known blood, you know, this sort of thing. I think this. Uh, ex- I think this treats humans as like automata, just, you know, uh, uh, agents bouncing around in a pinball game, just hopelessly, helplessly under the control of these uh, masterful uh, people out there, these programmers. <laughs> and uh, I- I'm really not worried about any of this stuff. I'm not. I think it's greatly exaggerated. I don't think we need to break up the tech companies. Um, you know, I don't think they're you know, determining the outcome of elections by based on the algorithm that sends you 1% more positive articles about Hillary versus Trump or, or whatever. 
most of the research since the 2016 election, for example, summarized nicely in Hugo Mercier's latest book, Not Born Yesterday, is that most of these uh, attempts to hack the election through social media, complete waste of time. They did next to nothing in terms of shifting people's votes and preferences. Um, very few people actually consume online content that moves them one direction or the other. And not just politically, but I mean, most advertising is a waste of money. Most political advertising is a waste of money. Um, it, it's, it's based on the wrong conception of human cognition. You know, we're not that gullible. We're not that stupid. And, you know, we're not just a, a pinball bouncing around helplessly under the control of other people. You know, there are influences, but they're not nearly as strong as we thought. That's the latest research from people that study this, you know, where they actually give subjects, put, put them in experimental conditions to see, see what they actually do. Um, so I, I wasn't impressed with the social media, and I don't think we should fear Facebook and Instagram and Google and all this stuff that everybody's uh, concerned about. And, um, you know, anyway, that's, that's my, my thoughts on that. Fair, and, but on a macro level, the idea of a subject interfacing with an object and being so engrossed with an object that even before smartphone technology that if the subject never makes the inquisitive process as just we turn were, it off well no i'm not i'm not even talking about smartphones anymore i'm just yeah. saying in general in life because you know we were talking about this earlier some sort of like what we're aiming to build in 2021 is a lot of this sort of mixed realities technologies that enable young people to see the pragmatic benefits and what we're talking about to maximize their well-being, right? The pragmatic grounding, which is really important. I completely agree with you. And then if the subject is never, ever being pragmatically grounded by an investigation into their own awareness, their own psyche, their own conscious experiences that they have with objects, that they have with other selves, with other subjects. If they don't have that ever, that trigger, then the person is going to inevitably walk around with a box around their head in a very egoic state of consciousness. And usually the only time that they'll break from an egoic state of consciousness is when they have a child. Because when you have a child, at least for one moment, at least, that you feel like you're in service to someone else, that you're serving, you've deprioritized your ego in service of someone else. Now, that may last a year, 18 years. It may last a little bit of time. It lasts but forever. Sometimes it lasts forever. <laughs> well, yeah. sometimes it does, yeah. But that, and that's the thing is that, that just that process as we've been indicating is just investigating inward it leads to a lot of profound realizations that then catalyze very important pragmatic increases in well-being to myself my family because the last thing that you want to do is you want to walk around being a, a bag of stress a bag of anxiety and just 
butterfly affecting out anger and malevolence, especially if you're in a position as a Fortune 500 CEO. Imagine if we could quantify the current state of consciousness of the Fortune 500 CEOs, of Congress, of the UN General Assembly, of the 2200 billionaires on the planet. And imagine if we could provide interventions, scientifically literate ones around fMRI, EEG, HRV, microbiome, all these interventions that could eventually move the leaders in these positions to more transcendent states of being that are beyond the ego and then how that would butterfly down through our society okay do, do you feel like that's a good idea do you feel like that's a bad idea where do you stand on things like that um i guess the question would be what's the problem you're trying to solve well, maximizing the, the, prosperity the, on the planet. The, the CEOs make too much money no, compared no, no, to the no, maximizing workers, prosperity on the planet. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just well, how, how are you going to do that with this? Well, because when or? well, because what happens is when a let's just let's just take the 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 CEO of of of, of let's just take Jeff Bezos for example. That because I, I also use him in the example in the book because the idea is if we can at least quantify a biometric data visualization of the person's phenomenological state of being and then if we can provide scientifically literate interventions into their awakening to catalyze that what will inevitably happen is that jeff already i think in many ways does have some of these proclivities which are fantastic but they'll get ramped up to the next level and it's it's very in a sense very so what yeah. would you want him to do well like tomorrow he gets up tomorrow what, what's he gonna do well for example let's say remember we were giving these examples of like what Deepak is doing right now is one version of what there's a lot of other quantified centers that are doing that actually have even more tech stacks than what so you're talking about meditate like 30 minutes a day. That well, kind of well, thing, remember, well, I was just going to the tech stacks first because what we need to do first. I don't know what that is, a tech um, stack. So the tech stack would be the EEG, the fMRI, the HRV, the microbiome analysis, all this oh, type of stuff. Okay. Okay. So we go to where the centers are at that have the tech stack available to basically get a, a very pure scientific biometric scan of Jeff, let's say, okay. in this example. All right. Okay, so now we have a baseline, right? This is how science works. We have a baseline of his biometrics, okay. Okay, of his state of being. Now, what we want to do is we want to see if we have a catalog of states of human development with people, you know, people like Jean, Jean Piaget and Lawrence Kohlberg and, and Sri Aurobindo and the Mother Muriel Fossa and so many of these others that uh, Ken Wilber and uh, Claire Graves and and Don Beck and Chris Cowan have done, they've basically made a a scale of human development that goes from sort of egoic levels of consciousness to what we could say as non-dual levels of consciousness. But the general point is, where would this leader fit in this scale or this map? And then that's where we have had their first scan of their biometrics. Now what we do is we provide the interventions. So now interventions are things like what you were just listing a moment ago, which is it's maybe some sort of a, of a compilation of buffet items. There's many different items to choose from. There's the ones that you were listing with what you were listing when you were at Deepak's uh, center. And then there's, you know, there's ones that like the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies MAPS is doing around entheogens and the, and the beauty that entheogens have on our 
on our awakening. Okay, let's as say well. we, we do all this with Jeff. What and is then it? We what line. is it you want him to do? Open well, more well, it's centers, not, it's distribution actually, centers. But it's not or? even it's not even me. It's not even what I want. It's not about me in this case. It's actually about what is most optimal and healthy potentially for civilization which would be if we rebaseline let's say if jeff undergoes some of these options on the buffet for a period of a couple days or so and then we take another biometric scan and let's say that there have there have been the you know psychotherapists that have been helping him integrate some of his profound realizations that he's been having Especially if he undergoes something really interesting, like a heroic dose of psilocybin, because if 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 something like that was to happen and the entire ego gets blown out and it's literally just a state of of realized full realized unity level consciousness, what happens is when that person rebaselines, especially in such a position of power, it's inevitable that everything that they do downstream from there will be less self-dealing and will be more in service to others, which a lot of what Amazon's what, what, doing is what, already service to others. What would this others. translate into, like pay raises for employees or uh, discounted yeah, a discounted on question. property, uh, uh, on a great products, question. Great question. more distribution centers? It's a what, great what, question. What, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it would it would probably be something like for 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 Jeff's case, it might be something like probably the next most impactful thing that he could do after a slight increase in his own awakening is to then have a significant portion of his C level executives undergo the same process. Because it's but not what, a one then man. What would they do? It's not exactly. Yeah. And uh, so this is what I, I just wanted to preface what I was going to say with that, because that's really important because it's not a one person comes in with a gold nugget of more enlightenment and changes everything. But they need the other sea level people to come in as well and then slowly have that trickle in a way. OK, so then what does the whole team do after a whole team has undergone such experiences? Well. For example. One can't do something like, you know, this is why the EPA was put into place is you can't just go and dump toxins into the river and then expect that to not affect the hydrological cycle of the planet. There's an interconnectedness of all things. So that means even with what Amazon is doing, whether it be the cardboard boxes or whether it be the distribution centers or whether it be the automation or whether it be how the mental health of the employees, um, whether it be providing the employees with some sort of longer term uh, inclusive stakeholding equity structures to where even the person that's coming to deliver the packages at the door right now is still earning a couple of tokens per day in the wealth of Amazon, in the equity wealth of, of Amazon. So there's all different types of, of strategies okay. in this all case. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My friend John Mackey calls that conscious capitalism. Yeah. He's, he's good at, at it. We had Alexander McCobin on the program twice. Yeah. We I, like him a lot. I don't know who he he's is. The, the president of the oh. conscious capitalism. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 All right, sir. What yeah. else do you want to talk about? Because I have to go pretty soon. Yeah, let's uh, let's see. I have a uh, probably maybe. Let's see what else is in here. There's a good. There's still a good amount of things, but let's probably wrap on. Let's wrap on something that's really relatable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, a lot something of what we not, were doing not fit, not metaphysical. <laughs> hey, but a lot of that was leading to meeting basic needs and the synthesis of science and spirituality. So let's play around with something for a moment, okay? 
All right, so here we have a, a time. Okay, so the time is 6.46. Oh, my God. I got I to gotta go. Okay, all right. <laughs> Already, okay. my, so, my stress hormones are going. Are going. Okay, 6.46. Okay, 6.46. So now my question would be, have you felt the experience, right? We were talking about simultaneity. Have you felt the experience of time both being, of course, present in our biological finity in 80 years or so of life, but also have you re- have you also felt the realization that this idea of 646 Monday, December 14th is completely symbolically created by us to represent this? Yeah. You felt that too? Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. So then I mean, you felt illusory time as well. Well, I'm not sure what you're... What you're after here? Well, I just want to I just want to say that experiences like this, where somebody may have felt like the illusoriness of time, is also profoundly important. Because now think about how pragmatic that is. Because when you feel and realize that, you also realize more and more how I'm not just limited to a finite eternal uh, finite existence, but I am also beyond that. And if I can realize something like that, I can be better in my relationships with my family, my friends and beyond that. So there's like a grounded pragmatism. Are you stoned? No, <laughs> I, but you know, as Sad I've Guru had conversations says, with friends like this and they're stoned. As Sad Guru, as Sad Guru says is I'm high on life. It's really, I'm just, it, I'm yeah. just joking with you. Yeah. Okay. But it's important to have experience like that. Okay. But the, really the, the, let's see the, okay. The Godhead, this would be probably my, uh, okay. my last thought. Okay. Uh, okay. So the, <clears throat> the, one of the questions is what is the telos? You know, what's the attractor in mathematics is called a strange yep. attractor. Yep. Yeah. Yep. What is our complex system of a civilization evolving towards? And, okay. and it, could it be something like a, like a metaverse? Like a, a, in this case, it would be like a synthesis of artificial general intelligence, bio and neurotech with things like the Neuralink, things like the indistinguishable virtual realities that we may immerse ourselves into. And so if you put all of those things together and call it a metaverse, are we evolving towards something like that? Or what is this attractive? Yeah, well, I, I think... The deeper part of this is there a telos to the universe? I don't think so. I don't think I don't think we're in going in any particular direction inevitably, like unfolding laws of nature or you know, stages of history, that kind of thing. Um, that hasn't proved to be a very um, practical or, or predictable hypothesis. Um, you know, so I mean that's such a broad kind of generalization, but. Uh, I would say that's the case. I mean, like, just take moral progress. You know, so I wrote a book about this with very specific things. This is what happened. This person did this, and then this group did that, and then we passed this laws, and then we got to here. Now, what's behind it, of course, is this idea of reducing suffering and uh, uh, equal treatment under the law and so forth, which is based on this premise that I'm not special. Uh, so I shouldn't get special privileges that you shouldn't also get. Um, okay, so... But that could all get reversed. There's nothing, there's no law of nature that says we have to continue doing that. Uh, I think it's unlikely we'll go back to something like slavery or, or no votes for women or anything like that. Very unlikely, but not impossible. There's nothing, so this is not a law of nature that you know we have to go in this direction. Um, 
in terms of well okay godhead telos um uh, that you know very very specific things that are done um you know are dependent on us actively doing them so i mean much of your language makes it sound like there's this sort of cosmic force or i don't know kind of a direction to to things you know and you use like well this um, you know, may, maybe there'll be something like a global internet metaverse. Yeah. Yeah. Metaverse. Well, you, you know, f- making predictions about the future, anything more than like five years out, nobody knows, uh, you know, the best for super forecasters, the people that do this for a living, they're no better than, than uh, the monkey throwing the dartboard, flipping a coin, rolling the dice. Um, it's just randomness. And, and the reason for that is because, um, uh, you know, the uh, historical systems are so contingent. The further out you go, you don't know what the contingency are. They're going to push it down here, push it down there. I mean, as late as the really 19, late 70s, early 80s, no one predicted the Internet. I mean, you know, it was uh, people, the news sphere, maybe that was the closest thing or a few things like that. But, you know, no one predicted, you know, apps would do this and, you know, the smartphones and the Facebook. And this was all completely uh, new. And so to ask, well, where are we going to be in a thousand years from now? I don't know. You don't either. Nobody knows. No one can know. And and, 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 and the implications of that is that we're not moving toward anything. It, it could go the way that, that, that you described, but probably not. It'll, it'll probably be something completely different. You know, if we didn't know, you know, here we are in 2020. If we didn't know 30 years ago, make it 40 years ago, this is where we'd be. How can you even ask, well, what's this all going to lead to in a, a century from now, a thousand years from now? I mean, I don't know. It's fun to think about. It's what science fiction is is all about. It's fun. Thought experiments are important to see what we could conceive of, but let's not think of them as predictions. Let's just think of them as kind of thought experiments for fun to see what they may, you know, what fruit they may give us. That that you know that's possible. Um, you know, so I mean, at the end of the moral arc, I kind of speculated. You know, maybe you know the nation state will come to an end. You know, why do we need nation states? Borders are pretty porous already economically, although that's kind of gone the other direction for the last few years with economic nationalism. But um, you know, maybe something like the city state would return as the center of power. Uh, the mayor would be the equivalent of the uh, of the president or prime minister now, uh, and and that m- massive power structures like corporations. Um, and government agencies would get smaller and smaller and that that power would be more uh, diffusely spread out so no one can get too much power. I I would think that would be a good thing. But again, it's not inevitable that that would happen. (laughs) And in fact, we've seen since I wrote that book in 2015, we've seen the rise of of, um, you know, more of uh, autocracies and and, uh, uh, you know, strongmen, dictators and things like that. Um, you know, so again, I, I, I don't know. And, and, and nobody does. Silly question. What is your favorite food? <laughs> Whatever I'm, 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 uh, uh, eating at the moment is usually it. I'm, I'm pretty much an omnivore. You know, I mean, I, I, I study diets and try to avoid too much red meat and things like that. Yeah. But it's pretty much whatever, you know, whatever's in front of me, I, I'm, I, I'm on a seafood diet. If I see it, I eat it. Oh, that's a funny <laughs> one. <laughs> we haven't had that answer on the show before. <laughs> seafood. I see it. I eat it. That's a good one. I'm not as bad as Homer Simpson, you yeah, know, just yeah. eating donuts. I do try to avoid those kinds of things. 
Yeah, you take good care. Of I mean, your the body. research on this is pretty is pretty interesting. Uh, Marta Zaruska, her book Growing Young, uh, documents all this that um, you know social relationships, having uh, living with somebody uh, that you that you actually like to live with, uh, you know, having friends and family, you know, having neighbors that you talk to, these things uh, in terms of mortality risk, they lower mortality risk more than exercise and diet exercise and diet are still important but even more important it's sort of you combine the two of those exercise and diet together having a, you know a, a spouse a partner somebody that loves you that you love having children family friends anything a social network yep. people you talk to every day that you know them they know you you care about them they care about you and then just expand out from there. neighbors a community that you care about um, you know, that kind of thing that matters even more than the diet and exercise. So I really don't worry too much about that. I mean, I like cycling a lot. So I ride, I work yep. out a couple hours a day, but it's mainly cause I enjoy it. Yep. yep. Uh, it, not that like, Oh boy, I get to live five more minutes now at the end of my life, <laughs> something like that. Uh, it, you know, and, and, and as Marta points out, you know, you, you don't have to, you know, get, set your alarm at five in the morning and do burpees for an hour and then eat a kale salad for breakfast. You can just sleep in and then kiss your partner, talk to your neighbor and volunteer for the local, whatever nonprofit and that'll do even more than eating kale and, and sweating at six in the morning. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. If that's what you mean beautiful. by spirituality, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. This is, it's been a, such an interesting back and forth. There's so much to, to try and, and drive into a more, uh, in a more synthetic level between science and spirituality and a less, um, for your book, I, I would I would say if I was to give any advice as somebody's written a lot of books, um, ask yourself this: What's my book about? What, what what question am I trying to answer? What problem am I trying to solve? And the more specific you can make it, the better. You know, just just think of the again the elevator pitch. You know, the the, the salesman at the publisher says, "Well, I got to pitch this to the bookstores so that they'll order it." What's it about? <laughs> and what? if it's if it's like it's about everything. One, uncovering the nature of reality. Two, synthesizing science and spirituality. And three, meeting basic needs. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. That's that's pretty big. And, and, I so, mean, and, even just, and it's just really the, interesting yeah. that it's only 23 graphics and it's, it's uh, maybe like only a couple um, words, you, you a couple should, paragraphs for each one of those graphics. So it's really short. And it's people have finished it in 30 minutes. You should and just call it 10 rules for life. Two, two less than Jordan. 20, 20, <laughs> 23 graphics. Yeah, this is, I think this is probably one of the like more simple ways also to understand the synthesis of science and spirituality in many ways. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I think Stuff like this. You think about it like physicalism and spirituality, individuality and non-dualism. Also, solo and symphony is another good way Again, to put careful it. careful on the jargon. I mean, the average person will have no idea what you're talking about. It's it's too up here. Like, uh, so what? I don't even know what you're talking about. How does this affect my life? Well, we spent a good, um, almost you know, hour. I'm just telling you, you know, to introduce it to somebody has. We did. We gave, but we gave those simple breakdowns of pragmatic applicability throughout the um, hour plus conversation that should 
anchor some of these these points okay. in. So yeah, so I that's, want a one percent commission on all your sales. That's it. <laughs> Michael. Right, thank dude. you so much for all coming right, on the welcome. show again. Yeah. Super appreciate right. oh, it. Oh, we were supposed to do an elbow, yeah, bump. elbow bump. Okay. Yeah. Thank I, you very I much for coming, <laughs> coming on the program. All right. Thanks everyone Sounds for tuning good. in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. Let us know what you think about the synthesis of science and spirituality and how we can bring this more to our world. We'd love to hear from you. Also check out Michael's links in the bio below. We have a bunch of his links down there. Uh, everything from his website, also skeptic.com. Also all of the articles he's written for Scientific American. Also his Twitter is down there. And all of his books, especially his most recent one, Giving the Devil His Due. Check those out. And support the artists, entrepreneurs, spiritual leaders, scientists, engineers, people building the future in your communities and around the world. Support them and help them grow. You can support us. Simulation, our links are in the bio below. Help us flourish as well. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Synthesize science and spirituality. We love you very much. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Peace. <laughs> very good.